So this morning we are beginning our new series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And Won't You Be My Neighbor is a three-week discovery into how God has called and equipped us into intentionally living out the mission of God's kingdom into our neighborhoods so that it may be next door as it is in heaven. Now, obviously, many of us, if you're like me, cannot even begin to think about this idea of neighborhood or what it means to neighbor without uh, thinking about the children's television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I know that many of you are like me because when I walk through the lobby, so many people ask me if I was going to put on a cardigan sweater uh, today or blue shoes. And while I am not, I do acknowledge the influence that Mr. Rogers has had on generations with his TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And if you are, by some chance, unfamiliar with it, it, it was a half-an-hour children's program that ran, from 30, for, ran for 33 years, from 1968 to 2001. Now, during each of those half-hour segments, Mr. Rogers would speak directly into the camera to his viewers, and he called them his neighbors. And he would speak directly to them about various issues, taking on neighborhood explorations into factories and experiments and crafts and music and feeding his goldfish and interacting with his other neighborhood friends. Filmmaker and actor Tim Robbins once introduced Mr. Rogers as the best neighbor that any of us ever had. We can say that he truly exemplified a neighborhood life that most of us would desire to live in. In the opening for his show, he would, he would come out and he would, he would put on this sweater and uh, he would take off his shoes and he'd kind of flip them over and put on some other ones and he would sing this song and in it he would sing, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together. We might as well say, won't you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? That's as close to singing it as you're going to get me saying it this morning. In this changing and crazy world, most of us would deeply desire and want to have more meaningful neighborhood relationships. In this song, there's a realization for me that since we are here together in this moment and in this place, it only makes sense that we work at being intentional neighbors together. And to me, this song has a bit of prophetic idea in it. It's prophetic to, to think about making the use of where God has put us. Mr. Rogers used to invite his viewers into a land of make-believe, and he would ask them to get on his trolley and go into this land of, of imagination. And so, East Petersburg Mennonite Church, this morning, I invite you to just sit with me for a minute and enter a land of make-believe. Now, just imagine with me. What would happen if we as followers of Jesus, his church, would live in our neighborhoods in such an intentional and invested way that those outside the church desired us as neighbors? What if they could say, those Christians are the best neighbors any of us ever had? Recently, a Pew Research report found that 46% of people across the globe think that the church is actually a burden to their neighborhood and to the world. They think that we are actually doing more harm than good. In other words, people don't want the church to be their neighbors. They don't want followers of Jesus as their neighbors. Let me just share one tidbit with you about Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was actually played by a guy named Fred Rogers, and 
he was a Presbyterian minister. In an interview, he once said this, we live in a world where we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say it's not my child, it's not my community, not my world, not my problem. And then there are those that see the need and respond, and he said, I consider those people my heroes. Folks, I want us to explore this series, the story of God, in a way that we find contagious ways to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus so that we can live in our neighborhoods in intentional and invested ways that makes us neighborhood heroes, in ways that people say we desire the church next to us because they know we are going to experience a better neighborhood. I want us to become neighborhood heroes. I actually don't think that uh, being a neighborhood hero or becoming a neighborhood hero is just this lofty idea or a practical idea. I think it is a kingdom value. And sometimes communities and organizations, they kind of plan their next future out and they call it a purposeful plan. A purposeful plan can be described as this strategic or organizational plan or a roadmap to the future. This morning, I want us to lay the foundations of our Won't You Be My Neighbor series by developing our own purposeful plan, by looking at the greatest commandment and through the lens that I believe Jesus laid it out as a purposeful plan. I actually believe that Jesus has given us the greatest command as a kingdom value that acts as a strategic organizational plan or a roadmap for the future. So this morning I invite you to look at the greatest command with me. And we're going to be looking at Mark 12, 28 through 34. And allow me to share some just important context around this passage before we read it. In the beginning of Mark, Jesus, of Mark 12, Jesus begins to talk about a parable. And he, he hasn't gotten to the point yet where he's telling them what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. He is just telling them this parable, this parable of the tenants. And in Mark 12 alone, we're going to see that Jesus encounters Pharisees, chief priests, uh, elders, miscellaneous other teachers of the law, Sadducees, Herodians, and a lawyer-like scholar. As Jesus begins to tell the story of the parable of the tenants, it was at this point that Mark says in the story that the chief priest, based on his story alone, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and went away. This story that Jesus told deeply infuriated the religious leaders. They were so ready to have him arrested and shut down as a result. However, the crowd was loving Jesus. They wanted him as a neighbor. There was something contagious about the way he lived, the way he spoke, the way he healed. And as a result, the religious leaders went away. They were scared to call Jesus into question because they were afraid of what the audience would do to them. They were afraid of the neighborhood. Well, not much longer the crowd begins to disperse. And so those masterminding, manipulator, religious leaders send this elite team of Pharisees and Herodians to engage Jesus. Now, Pharisees we know as religious leaders. They are excellent teachers of the law. They are much like modern-day pastors. But we don't talk much about this idea of Herodians. Now, they were religious scholars who did not live well in the tension of the law and the empire because they had married them together and they had actually proclaimed a love for Herod, 
Herod the Great. To them, everything was a legal battle on spiritual matters. So, acting out of their wheelhouse, they tried to trap, trap Jesus by talking about taxes. They tried to use the area that they know best about the law by engaging Jesus on matters of the law with taxes. But it doesn't work. None of the religious leaders are able to trap Jesus. And however, the Sadducees who are kind of just on this uh, sideline watching this situation unravel then think they have what it takes to engage Jesus. Now the Sadducees were much more of a humanistic kind of Jewish group. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in souls or spirits or things you can't see. They, did, they tried to trap Jesus, though, with his belief on marriage in relation to the resurrection. So again, using what they thought they were experts, the end times, the, the uh, lack of an afterlife, they tried to trap Jesus on what it means to be married in heaven. Again, none of these various groups of spiritual leaders are able to shut down Jesus until another teacher of the law stands up. Now, all these teachers have tried uh, to kind of teach and uh, trap Jesus in the areas and the arguments that they knew best. And so seemingly this next guy that rises to the surface is this kind of scholar-lawyer type. And, and there's some words in the original text that just make us seem that he's this kind of lawyer type that has this deep scholar uh, kind of uh, teaching to him. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one like him. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifice. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask questions. This guy had tried to trip Jesus up over the core of the gospel, over the core of the law. Jesus was able to walk this fine line between their differences and was able to wisely answer in a way that not only satisfied them all, but actually challenged them in their own living of it. He challenged them with his answer on these two important aspects of kingdom life. Because culturally, they had become numb to these two but simple and challenging commands. And I think far too often that we too become numb on what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. We turn it into t-shirts. We turn it into church slogans. We turn it into uh, bumper stickers. But far too often, we actually don't look at how it gets lived out or what Jesus meant by it. Sadly, that means we too have become increasingly numb and ignorant to the greatest commandment. This morning, as we enter this new series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I want us to do so by making sure that we are doing what we think Jesus says really matters. We want to engage this one thing that Jesus says is more important than anything else you can do, is this. 
what we see in this passage but fail to grasp, is explained well by the Moody Bible Commentary. One of the scribes recognized Jesus and answered them well. He said, what commandment is foremost of all? Religious leaders had discovered 613 commandments in the law, 365 of which were negative, 248 which were positive. Many of the commandments had champions who argued for their validity as the greatest. So this question could have easily tripped up Jesus because every religious leader of the law that was around them would have had different opinions on what they thought were the greatest commands. In fact, they would have divided them and they would have argued amongst themselves on which laws they thought were, and they would have called them heavy and which they would have considered light. Which ones were most important and which ones are just good thinking. They would have had debates and discussions and these groups would have disagreed on them. The inquisitive scholar is sure that he has Jesus against the wall. N.T. Wright explains the trap of the inquisitive scholar like this. Faced with the whole volume of the Jewish law, which commandment really matters? Which one will you grasp on a moment of crisis? And what is the significance of that choice? And by doing that, what are you saying about the others? What we see is that Jesus actually skillfully answered. He answered with a respected prayer that dedicated Jews had memorized and recited daily, the Shema. F.F. Bruce explains the Shema like this. On being asked to which was the most important of the commandments, Jesus replied by quoting the Shema, which pious Jews recited daily. But he asked that God was to be loved with the mind as well as the other human faculties. The Shema would have been taught uh, to them that they should recite it, they should repeat it, they should memorize it, they should say it every morning and every night. The Shema was found uh, in leather boxes that devout Jews and teachers would have uh, worn on their heads and on their wrists. It actually, the word Shema just means to listen or to hear. And it was also to be found attached in a round box to every door of a Jewish home. Jesus knew that this was the single most common accepted greatest command. But he also knew it was startling and an ending place, a starting and ending place as God's children. Jesus had challenged their priorities. They were challenging him, but he challenged them to make sure that their priorities were right, that they hadn't misprioritized the gospel and the law. That at the end of the day, he was saying it's always been about a focus on the Father. However, then Jesus did something else. Without even being asked what was the second greatest commandment, he told them that it was love your neighbor as yourself. This was a respected Levitical law on how to respond to those in your neighborhood. In essence, Jesus married together these two commands into one light of his kingdom DNA. And he gave them, in a sense, a new Shema. If they were listening, Jesus took everything they knew, 365 negative uh, commandments and, and over 200 positive commandments, and he married them all into just one single command, to love God and to love our neighbor. It can be summed up by loving God in everything, with everything we are in a way that pours out into the way that we love our neighbor. In essence, he didn't give them just the DNA to the kingdom, but he gave them a new Shema, a new way to hear from God, a new prayer to recite. Again, the Moody Bible Commentary. But Jesus added, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Some streams of first century Judaism, like the Zealots, would have taught that no one uh, that someone should love their neighbor and hate 
his enemy. Jesus was the first to take these two commandments and marry them into one. God's people had paid lip service to the commands of loving God and loving their neighbor in the same way that we've made it a bumper sticker or a tweetable church slogan. Jesus taught the way to love God is shown actually by the way that we love our neighbor. He realized that they had missed something really important. You see, at the time, it was really common for Jewish people to explain why they didn't need to love their neighbor. In fact, they had interpreted the Levitical law of what it means to love your neighbor as what it means to love those like you. We never do that, right? We as a church, we never just love those who are most like us or those who are uh, in our church. In fact, some of the sects had begun to say that they, in fact, were just to love their countrymen and they were to hate the Gentiles, the other people in the neighborhood. They were only supposed to love those who were most like them. There's a few notes that we can see in this passage. The law reminded people of ways to live out God's promise and their responsibility as his children. And even as great and visionary as those commands were, the children of God too often grew numb and comfortable to them, even justifying them to mean other things. Well, I'll love those like me, but not literally those next to me. In this passage, Jesus reprioritizes these commandments as a lens for everything that matters, as our responsibilities in the kingdom. And when Jesus answered, love God, He reminded them of where they had sold their alliances to and whose opinion really mattered. Then when Jesus added, love your neighbor, he was referring to a shared understanding of how the law declared that we should respond to our literal neighbors. The man quizzing Jesus was found to be near the kingdom of God when he realized there was no other purposeful plan greater than love God and love your neighbor. Jesus responded to him, you are near the kingdom. But folks, I don't want to be near the kingdom. I want to be in the middle of the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I want to see what God is doing in the world, and I want to be a part of it. I don't want to get close to what God's doing or where God is at. I want to be in the midst of it. Sadly, though, even though Jesus gave his followers this great lens to see the kingdom advance through, we as Christians don't really love our neighbor any different than anyone else. Like the teachers of the law, we've become numb and justifying in loving some and hating others. In the art of neighboring, the authors Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon were pastors in the Colorado area. And they began to meet with city officials in their town of Colorado. And time and time again, they heard this. You don't realize that where we're at as city councilmen, we don't see Christians neighboring any different than anyone else. We have no distinguishable difference between a Christian in the neighborhood and an atheist. Folks, Jesus gave us a command to love God and to love our neighbor. He showed us ways to be intentionally invested, and our city leaders aren't able to determine the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the neighborhood. As a result, I think our neighborhoods are suffering. We're not being good at what Jesus called us to be good at. We don't have neighborhood heroes defining our neighborhoods with a defining plan. In fact, 
many Christians would avoid the mission field rather than plan for a place. Two-thirds of us, listen to this, uh, actually, this is from Barna. They did a survey in 2015. However, if you do not live in a rural area, if you do happen to live in a rural area, it's more likely than not you're religious. In other words, Christians are found more in rural areas than anywhere else. Evangelicals, 31%, and practicing Christians, 27%, make up almost two-thirds of those living in the rural areas, compared with those who have no faith, which is just 15%. The number completely flips when you analyze suburbans and towns is even less. Two-thirds of us are already at a disadvantage of what Jesus told us to do. Those of us living in those areas obviously aren't doing well because we don't see our faith mattering to them. 46% of the world thinks that we're more harm than good. In Time Magazine, Dave Pell wrote, Can you name your neighbors? Because more than half of Americans say they can't. Between the internet, the overscheduling of kids, and the parents who spend longer hours at work, suburban neighborhoods have undergone a dramatic shift in recent years. So much so that they found that one-third of the neighbors in England couldn't actually pick out their, neighbor, their nearest neighbors in a police lineup. They took several thousand people, they put their nearest neighbors into a police lineup, and one-third of them could not actually identify their nearest neighbors. Folks, this is what Jesus has called us to do, to love our neighbors. It doesn't mean to just know that in our hearts or our minds. It means we need to have their names on our lips. Pew Research Center survey in 2015 says this, Americans today are less likely to spend social evenings with their neighbors than in the past. In 1974, 61% of Americans said they would spend a social evening with someone in their neighborhood at least once a month, while 39% said they would do that less than a month or not at all. And that was according to a general social survey. These shares have almost flipped in 2014. Fewer than half, 46%, said that they spend social evenings with their neighbors at least once monthly, compared with 54% who do not. Good neighbors can be a blessing, whether they're people you can trust, the water, the plants, or watch your kids. But building that trust can be hard. Just half of Americans, 52%, say they trust all or most of their neighbors. Why, similar share, 48%, say they trust some or none of their neighbors. I would love to know what it looks like for Christians in those mixes. Are we people that trust our neighbors? Or are we people that our neighbors trust? On Monday morning, as Grace mentioned, I had the chance to sit down with uh, Langston newspaper staff uh, writer Earl Cornelius inside our lobby. And I, and I deeply enjoyed my time with him. It was one of the best conversations I've ever had with a reporter. As, as we met and talked, I was presented with space and opportunity to share where I'm at in life and where I feel that God is leading my story. I also had the chance to tell him about the story that I think God is writing for us here at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. In this current chapter of our almost 300-year-old story, I personally and humbly think we are being called to develop a better understanding of what it means to have a purposeful plan, to find purpose in our place, and to be present with a purposeful presence. It is from this place that we are studying this upcoming series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? When the article came out in Saturday's newspaper, he called it a good neighbor policy. And I like that. 
He goes on with the subtitle. It says, East Petersburg Mennonite Church has a mission to connect with the community. Most of you are aware that over a decade ago, I didn't want much to do with church. However, as I look back on my journey, and even in that era, I am now aware of the ways God was shaping and teaching me and equipping me to care about community and neighborhood. My apartment in that era was in Strasburg, and there was something about the way that the small town of Strasburg was connected with each other. Like how I could buy a sub with a handshake. That stood out, and it deeply resonated in me. The greatest commandment was beginning to already eat away at who I was, and I hope it is for you too. In all honesty, I know I am far from where I am journeying to. Like you, I am still learning to live more and more into what it means to live and love like Jesus. However, for me, I know that because neighboring is so close to the heart of God and to the kingdom of God, it is also important for me. However, if I'd be transparent, I'm also realizing that though I'm involved with the events committee and other bigger uh, things in our town, I've at times have neglected my specific block. There's 29 homes. I know half of those 29 homes, but I don't know the other half. And I'm becoming more focused on what it means to be intentional about knowing all 29 of those homes on my cul-de-sac. So I continue to give myself missional projects to meet more and more neighbors on that 29-home cul-de-sac. Currently, I am planning an upcoming gathering event. This past uh, month, I created a Facebook group for them to join and meet each other. And ironically, one of my neighbors said, before you came, I actually didn't know any of the other neighbors on our neighborhood either. Folks, we are created to neighbor in ways that stand out. I encourage you, to think about this. It's not about the ending. It's not about knowing every neighbor so well, but it is about taking baby steps so we can discover and rediscover the kingdom's DNA. In saying love your neighbors, Jesus referenced a shared Levitical understanding of what it means to love your neighbors in Leviticus 19. Let me read those things to you. Share what's left over your land with those next to you, including the poor and the immigrant. Do not steal from each other. Now, these are the things that when Jesus said, love your neighbor, his listeners would have known he was referring to. Speak truth to each other. Do not steal from each other. Do not manipulate or undermine each other. Sadly, how many times have you heard that Christians are actually the worst people to work for? I've heard that. Have you guys heard that? So many people say Christians are actually the worst people to work for. They're actually the worst people to live next to. What are we doing, folks? Listen, he says, stand in the town by my name without swearing by it. Invest in your neighbor, not take from him. Pour out goodness in the way that you pay your workers. Help those with disabilities. Seek justice for everyone, not just your friends or the ones that are great among you. Speak life, not slander. Protect your neighbor's life, not endanger it. Never hate a neighbor, but never join in their trespasses either. Seek love, not revenge. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And love God in a way that keeps his values. How well are we doing that, folks? We aren't always getting that right with each other, nevertheless with our neighborhood. How good are we at with this thing that Jesus has called us to be good at? I invite the worship team forward, and I encourage you to think about that. What ways can you neighbor different? What baby steps can you take to stand out in your neighborhood?